Father, thank you again for your people, for the opportunity to be able to come before you and to worship you as your church, as your holy bride. We do pray, Father, that our worship will be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear, that we would be a blessing to you, Lord. We pray for this time in the Word together, that it would honor you, that in all matters of life, especially marriage, we would be pointed to you, what pleases you, what accomplishes your will, and what exalts the name of your Son in this world. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone. Back at it. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We will return to the same text we were exploring uh, last Lord's Day. And Lord willing, we will complete that study today. That's my intent, is uh, to approach this subject thoroughly because it is a very important one. I think one uh, whose importance is often underestimated or relegated to sort of a, as we said, a lower tier uh, part of our marriage. And yet the Bible says otherwise. And so that is our starting point. And we understand its authority. We understand its counsel. And of course, we want to obey the Lord in that regard. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I will begin at verse 1. And I will read through, I'll read through verse 7. We won't be going actually through verse 7, but just so we have the full context today. Please follow along as I read. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this, or but this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God one in this manner and another in that. So, uh, moving on with our theme of blessed intimacy within the blessed confines of marriage. Uh, this sermon is called Holy Sex. It's diligence, devotion, and defense. So that will really be part three of this theme overall and part two regarding holy sex, which of course points to the very important truth that in all manners of life and faith, we are to be holy unto the Lord. Everything we do is to be rendered as an act of faithful worship to Him. Everything we do in life, yes, even sex within the confines of marriage, is to be done within the confines of honoring our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's a fact. And of course, we want to give close attention to that. Now, of course, last Lord's Day, we uh, made some effort to clarify the context Especially in the first four verses, we covered uh, Paul's discussion of the issue of the marriage union, and as it concerns especially the historical context of what it would have been like living in the Roman Empire with all of its uh, various sexual perversions. And we found that 
this would be especially helpful and necessary to explain to the Corinthians because within the Roman Empire, we know that there were at least uh, four versions of marriage. Four different types of marriage. So it's totally reasonable, it's totally understandable that living in a city as godless as Corinth, as idolatrous as Corinth, that that question would come up. Well, there's a new king being proclaimed and his name isn't Caesar, his name is Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? What does marriage look like under his lordship? What are the expectations? What are the standards? And it's interesting because one of the most dysfunctional churches that we, that we have on record from the New Testament is the church in Corinth. And yet, they had the sense to ask some very good questions. And among these were, well, what about marriage? What about marriage, Paul? What do we do regarding marriage in a largely pagan society governed by a pagan emperor who approves of all of these, well, from the Bible's point of view, sexual perversions? And so this is where we come to. The original institution. The original institution, and that is marriage. And so as Paul lays out, if you want to pay attention to your text, as Paul lays out in verses 1-4, through he covers three very important overarching themes specific to marriage and even more specific to sex. They are fidelity, duty, and authority. And simply put, fidelity comes from comes from this. He says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Many of us say that in our marriage vows, to have and to hold, right? To have and to hold from this day forward, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. So each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. They are to have one another, just the two of them. And that marital union is to be closed off. Those are those boundaries. This word, the word own carries that weight, but they are a one flesh union, and that is to be guarded. That is to be protected. They are to cherish and honor one another, as Peter says, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. But they belong to one another. And you see this sort of, this, this attention, this restoration, as it were, taking place that uh, goes back to God's original intention for marriage in the Garden of Eden. One man, one woman, and that's it. One man, one woman for life. To love and to honor one another before the Lord and to live for His glory and for the extension of His kingdom. So we have that. We have that fidelity, that unity. We also have duty. Duty that Paul says. He says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. It's very important is most likely speaking of sexual relations specifically. Now we do understand that in the whole of marriage, we have multiple duties that we are to render and fulfill toward one another as man and wife before the Lord. That's obvious. And we are to fulfill those. We are to see, see, see them mature, to see them uh, be completed, to see consistency, and to see that expressed in love and faithfulness, of course. But that also includes faithfulness and duty in sex. And of course, the way we understand this specifically is found in verse 5 where Paul says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time. Of course, of it, you're not tempted, right? So that's the context we're dealing with and we've got to pay attention to it. And then of course, we have authority. 
Paul reinforces his point by saying, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Which tells us, among other things, that the husband and wife are free to respectively uh, prevail upon one another for the fulfillment of their sexual obligations toward one another within marriage. It's very plain. And so, Paul continues to develop his argument, and that's where we continue from today. Holy sex, it's diligence, devotion, and defense. Those are the three things we will be covering today as we move through verses 5 and 6. So let's begin. Verse 5, Paul says this, Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So let's look at that carefully. He says this, Stop depriving one another. So Paul wouldn't bring this up if it wasn't a problem. He doesn't say in the future sometime, you know, if it comes down to it, we'll make sure you don't deprive one another. The way the language is framed here, it's as if this is already happening. And he's saying, don't do this. Stop this now. Stop depriving one another. So for whatever reason, this has become an issue within the Corinthian church. They are depriving one another. And we, I mean, you could, you could speculate where that's coming from, but one thing we know is that this is happening and it should not be happening. And it's definitely not limited to this point in history. I think there are many times when the man or his wife will deprive one another. And we would say sinfully so because it's violating the scripture right here. One of the books I've uh, mentioned uh, Worldly Saints, a book on Puritans, uh, highlights an example where a man within the church was actually excommunicated because he resisted his wife for two years. He withheld uh, what they called due benevolence within their marriage for two, for two years, and he was finally excommunicated from the church. And we think, wow, that's very drastic, and yet that's the view of, of, of marital fellowship that the Puritans upheld. It was a very serious ordeal. It was seen as sinful. It was seen as wicked. It was seen as an excommunicatable offense for a man or a wife to do that to their respective spouse. Those things are helpful historically because they draw our attention as to how seriously these things are taken. We should take them seriously as well. We've talked about the pitfall of relegating sexual relations within marriage, especially a Christian marriage, to something that is lower tier, but is not that important. We'll keep talking about that this morning. But here's the initial command, and this is why it requires diligence. Because without, because without diligence, the situation will inevitably lead to deprivation. So Paul says, stop depriving one another. And we think of the word deprived in our you know, modern parlance. We think, you know, just withholding something, withholding something that someone needs. Like, oh, this poor child, they are deprived of food or they're deprived of clothing. This relationship is deprived of attention. We're not paying attention to one another. Typically think of that as something that we're, it's being withheld. But think of, think of how else Paul uses it. If you turn back in chapter 6, he says this, Actually, then, it is already defeat for you. This is regarding Christians within the church taking one another to court rather than settling these things from within the, the body. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be, here's the key word, same word used, defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So they're cheating each other. 
They're not just withholding things. They are actually cheating one another. This word's also used in James chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Literally, the Lord of armies. It's using an Old Testament term for the Lord. The Lord of hosts. The one who commands the angelic armies to demonstrate His power and authority. And so this term withheld, this description that James gives, they are withholding payment. They are literally defrauding. And so note the nuance here. What this carries with it is not just withholding something that someone needs, but actually robbing them or cheating them out of something. Something that rightfully belongs to them. And note what Paul says in chapter 7. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You have authority over one another's bodies. You are not autonomous. And so, as Paul reasons, he says, so stop cheating one another, stop defrauding one another out of what rightfully belongs to each of you. And that's regarding sexual relations in marriage. Simply put, this is sin. So stop sinning against one another by withholding marital intimacy. It's a very simple command. And it is, it is sudden, and it is very straightforward. Paul leaves no confusion regarding his instruction here, regarding this. For some, that it'll be an encouragement, but for others, it will be a strong rebuke. And whatever situation you find yourself in, you can take it appropriately. So he says, stop doing this. Stop depriving one another. Stop cheating one another out of what is a, a very gracious provision of marriage. And so what, what I want to do today, among other things, is to try to unpack this command, to kind of explore the ins and outs of what happens when married people, specifically married Christians, deprive one another. We can, we can talk about what causes it, sort of the how and the why. How does that manifest itself? And there will be some honorable mentions. I think, you know, we have to, we have to talk about these things in our historical context because depending on what era we're in, uh, this, uh, the, a certain problem will have a, a different impact, just depending on what century you were born in. And so I would like to discuss uh, some of the ones that are more prevalent today and then maybe name a couple of others without getting too exhaustive. And some of these are actually worthy of their own message, but I just want to help you guys think this through. I want you to think it through so that you are able to better love and serve your spouse in this very precious and necessary uh, regard. And once again, kind of put this in my notes to make sure I would, <laughs> I would say it, uh, getting to the heart of the issue shining a light on some of these reasons. And the main issue is not to shame you, but to bring repentance where repentance is needed. But once again, it's out of love for your guys' marriage. I care about your marriage. I care about how you relate to one another. And this is very serious stuff that can't be ignored and it can't be said blushing. Remember, we can't be ashamed of it. I said last week, God is not a prude, so neither should we be. God is truthful. He is honest. And so should we be about the things that He clearly reveals in His Word. Even if that seems graphic at times. Even if that seems quote-unquote 
inappropriate. What is appropriate is that we faithfully proclaim and then understand the Word of God and be obedient to it. That's what matters. It's not what matters isn't about putting on airs or being, again, being pietistic or being some kind of self-righteous prude. We're not interested in that. We're interested in looking at the scriptures and seeing what God has to say to us, even something as personal and private as this. Private doesn't mean you don't talk about it. Not at all. So we want to explore this. And so, again, for some, for some of you, this will be an encouragement. For some of you, this will be exhortative. And for some of you, this may be a strong rebuke. But as, but as uh, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? And so some of you may come out of here wounded. But trust me when I say it is for your good. It is for the good of your marriage, your marriages. I want your marriages to be good. I want them to be joyful, right? I want them to be a delight to you. And I want messages like this to be a catalyst for drawing you closer to one another. And so here we are. Um, again, <laughs> don't want to embarrass you at all, but some, some of these things may come, come up and you say, oh, well, I totally do that. And so we want to say, well, how does this manifest? How does this creep into our marriage? And I, I do want to say one more thing. But there, when it comes to romance and marriage, the romance dynamic, there are pl there's plenty of material out there that explores that. You know, questions of, you know, how can I, you know, what are the five secret ways to get my wife to be more attracted to me? How can I get my wife to desire me more often? How can I get his, my husband to keep his eyes only on me? And of course, there may be a time and place to explore that, but I think Scripture's solution foundationally is much more clear and plain. And it says it right here. If you understand that you do not belong to yourselves, that you belong to one another and have responsibilities to one another, to look out for one another's interests, that is, if you start by obeying Jesus Christ, many of these other things, romance included, will fall into place. And we talked about that last, last time, right? Obeying, obeying the Word and obeying it joyfully, obeying it willingly, and everything else mentioned. But I think the problem with depriving one another ultimately comes down to one word, and no one likes to be called this word. Selfishness. If we're honest with one another, that's what it comes down to. We're being selfish. We're not thinking of our spouse when it comes to sexual fulfillment. That's why when Paul stresses the fact that you belong to each other, you, and you render your duty to one another, that is a call to not be selfish. And it's not even a call to be selfless. It's a, it's a call to serve one another. It's, it's, it's a call to give to one another. And it may be a rebuke that you're not considering one another. And so this is absolutely foundational. And so another uh, scripture to keep in mind comes from our scripture reading this morning, and that's why we read it. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. That's verse 3 of chapter 2. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You realize without humility of mind, this is impossible. In order to not be selfish, you must humble yourself. And of course, that's not just thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself and more about the needs of your husband or wife. It's thinking and considering their needs. It's considering them as more important than you. Because self-important people are lazy people, typically. 
They do what pleases only themselves, and then that's it. Time to end the day. Time to end the activity. But he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest. Because Paul understands that that is our natural inclination. We look out for our own interest. It's the same thought that goes behind the command of love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the Word of God understands that you are full of self-love. You, you love yourself. You provide for yourself. You feed yourself. You water yourself. You lay down. You lay yourself down and go to bed and rest. You make money, hopefully, to provide for yourself. You do a lot of things out of self-interest. But if that self-interest and that self-preservation stays contained, stays isolated to you and only you, you are sinning. You are sinning if you do not consider how you can serve your spouse. And so he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. And this, I mean, Paul is sort of giving an overall application, but specifically to 1 Corinthians, this is where we apply this scripture. When it comes to sexual fulfillment, we must consider our spouses as more important than ourselves. And you think about it in every context of marriage, when you apply this, the marriage will be will be more joyful, you will find yourself more content, you will be in greater harmony with your spouse, you will enjoy each other's time with one another more. If you, simple, if you simply humble yourself and look at your spouse as more important than you are. And we would say, yeah, that's a very difficult thing. We would say impossible. But once again, I point you to exhibit A, the Holy Spirit, who gives us the wherewithal to consider our spouse as more important than ourselves. It is he who enables us to do that. So without God, none of this is going to make sense. Without the Lord's power and enabling, this is going to be impossible. So recognize immediately. This is where your humility begins. Your lowliness of mind begins when you recognize that this is impossible without the Lord. But we have the Lord, and He gives us what we need. Gives us what we need in marriage. And so, where do these pitfalls lie? Where do these failures lie? think it, again, we talk about selfishness. I think that's really at the root of it. And at the root of selfishness is pride, and at the root of pride is ungodliness. Simply viewing life without respect to God. You know, it all goes back, all, all roads lead to ungodliness. Let's talk about this, this failure. And of course, it begins, I think, with one of the most outstanding issues we have today is simply the issue of laziness. You know, we've talked about the sluggard before, and laziness just has a way of wreaking havoc <clears throat> on marriage. Point to one area of marriage where laziness is present, where your marriage does not simultaneously suffer. If you're laziness in work, if you're not diligent with the work of your hands, especially you guys, if you're not out there making it happen, if you're not getting after it, if you're not applying yourself, body and mind, to your place of employment, there comes a time where you will find yourself what we call today as broke. Laziness never did anything for anyone. And so in the same sense, laziness will make your intimacy suffer. Laziness is just our excuse for not doing a lot of things. And a lot of the time, it's not even an issue of time. It's not even an issue of energy. We're just looking out for ourselves. We're just being selfish. We're just lazy. Because in our flesh, we're inclined to do the easiest 
thing. And the easiest thing is to do nothing. And so we do nothing. That's laziness. And this manifests itself in a variety of ways. I think first and foremost, you'll see laziness affect your ability to simply prioritize. If sex in marriage is a priority, then it follows that we should prioritize it. We should make time for it. And I think this follows from what we've called the Gnostic view of sex. Why don't we prioritize it? Because it's viewed merely, and I think tragically, as a more carnal or physical activity. It's really not as important as other higher spiritual and more lofty activities like prayer and morning devotions. But let me say this, something is either holy or it is not. And I think what some people have a hard time believing is the notion that Sex between a married man and woman who are Christians is somehow less holy than morning devotions. They're either holy or they're not. They're either Godward or they're apostate. And yes, they reap certain benefits. They reap different benefits. But the fact is, is that one is not necessarily more holy than the other. So when you ask yourself, so should, should I, should I, Men, should I make love to my wife or should I do morning devotions? Answer, yes. Yes. Both are spiritual (laughs) activities. Both are holy activities. Both are activities done in faith and in joy over God's blessed provision. And so, as we said last week, we are to do this regularly. God's declaration of one flesh is undermined if you are not regularly becoming one flesh. And you will not regularly become one flesh if you do not prioritize it. But that can be an expression of laziness. Another expression of this laziness can be when you come together only when you're both interested. Only when you both desire it. And let's be honest, how often do the stars align to where that is actually the case? I would say don't Wager your marriage on good, on good, impeccable timing. Right? I don't think God has built it that way. God has made us male and female, right? He has made us different. And I think that is a blessing because it requires work. We are made to work. And working for marital harmony in the confines or the context of sex is no different. We pursue one another. We serve one another. We put in the effort for one another. And don't mistake my use of effort, friends. Effort is not counter to grace. Effort is an expression of that grace that is already pervading our marriages. So don't wait until you're both interested. Think about it, like think about the the implications of this. What if you did everything like that when you're both interested? You'd be doing everything different. You'd have completely different schedules. You wouldn't be eating breakfast together. You wouldn't be eating lunch together. You wouldn't be going to bed together. I mean, your lives would be on such different trajectories, you would basically be relegated to roommates rather than man and wife. And you want to do everything you can to promote that togetherness, that oneness. So once again, we have to remind ourselves of Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit. That is, it's not about you. It's about ministering, in this case, to one another's sexual needs. And so rather than basing every encounter on whether or not you're in the mood, consider whether you're fulfilling your spouse's needs when they are in the mood. Here's another thing. This one, (laughs) 
This one's going to be really difficult for some of you. Here's the other way lazy, laziness expresses itself is, is too little effort or no effort at all. That is, that you are to be responsive to one another. We recognize, as we said last time, that because we are made of male and female, we are different. Our body chemistry is different. Our home, our hormones are different. We're very different. And so that is going to require effort and being responsive toward one another, even when you don't feel like it. So I'm not going to be PC here. <laughs> you must be responsive to one another. And you might change your mind halfway through when you are responsive to one another. But don't be unengaged. Avoid what I, <laughs> avoid what I call beached whale or dead fish syndrome. Cause you know it happens and you know it's true and shame on you. Repent. <laughs> Look, as, as much as sex is praised in the scriptures, it's very difficult to enjoy this when one of you is disinterested. There's a key concept here called reciprocity. When interest is shown, reciprocate the interest. Trust me, you're going to love me for this. <laughs> On the other hand, and here's, here's where we, you know, we want to avoid overcorrecting. On the other hand, don't rush into it only to get pleasure for yourself. This can be a pitfall for many husbands, as we have noted, who carry in their bodies 15 times more testosterone. Of course, you're different. Of course, you desire, you desire sex differently. That doesn't mean you can be selfish. So consider that your bodies are different and so respond differently to stimuli. Make this a time for serving one another and fulfilling one another's needs. Because these are good needs, they are good desires, but they also have to be fulfilled in a way that God has revealed. Here's another one. <laughs> Tiredness and fatigue. That can, you know, I'm tired, right? It's been a long day. And that is somewhat connected to laziness, but it can just be the reality of the situation. And, and while this happens and there is grace all around to remedy this, but on the other hand, we don't want this to be such a common thing that it puts sexual fulfillment on the back burner. Tiredness and fatigue. That can easily fall into laziness. It can easily be made to be an excuse to not uh, fulfill one another's needs. So if you're tired and you're fatigued, I, fatigued, I would say, you know, again, be diligent, right? Be wise, be discerning. It can be something as simple as looking at your schedule. Is my day too full, right? Am I doing too much and failing to pay attention to the needs of my spouse? And if you are, it is time to take, take some, I would say, biblical and wise steps and cut out of your schedule those things that, that, that make sex uh, very difficult to uh, attend to. Here's the here's another one, and I think I, I find this less prominent in Christian marriages, but it's something we want to be on guard against: is to weaponize sex. That is to make sex a reward or performance based. I will fulfill this desire of yours, but first you must do this. That is a terrible way of thinking about marital intimacy. You want marital intimacy to be something that is, that is natural, organic, something that you're inclined to, something that builds up, but not something that is a reward or performance base. This is nothing less than manipulation and is actually, I would say, more akin to prostitution than joyous fellowship because the service you are doing, you are essentially paying through a deed done so that your spouse 
finally relents and allows that to take place. Here's another one. This is going to be the hardest one. But hear the word of the Lord. <laughs> Here, here's, 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 here's one of the most difficult things I think that couples, both man and wife, face today. And it is this. It's the temptation in marriage to simply let yourself go. Let yourself go in all ways. Spiritually, physically, mentally. Remember, we are a whole person. And that is the temptation. And, and it, again, this is connected to laziness once again. And most of all, when you let yourself go, it manifests itself physically. This is, again, this is the one that no one wants to talk about. But you're here at Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church and we talk about everything. It's a very sensitive issue, right? Because no one, as we've said, no one wants to be considered unattractive. No one wants to think about themselves as being undesirable or unwanted. No person wants to somehow mistake their words and communicate to their spouse that they are undesirable whether it's true or not. No one wants to be thought of as repulsive. And so here's the counsel. One thing we recognize is that in all senses, beauty is a good thing. Attraction is a good thing. They are not everything. We know that. They're not everything, but they are necessary things. And one thing that amazes me is that in years of biblical counseling, there seems to be such consternation when this is brought up. And if this comes up, if the offense of bringing this up comes up in a counseling session, the question given is simple. Okay, let's talk about your courtship, right? Let's talk about this glorious thing we call the chase. The chase. You spied, you spied one another on the open plane. You saw one another. Your eyes caught one another. That's how it happens. That's how it starts. And then you engage in conversation, right? You got to know one another. You started feeling attraction, you fell in love, and hopefully one day a proposal was made and you got married. But going back to the chase, the question is, did you or did you not put effort into being attractive? In all senses. The answer is usually yes, overwhelmingly yes. Were you spiritually attractive? Let's get the top tier stuff, the important stuff out of the way first, right? Were you spiritually attractive, right? That is... Did you demonstrate a discernible presence of a love for God and a passion for His glory manifest in holy living and a love for others? Oh yes, I did that. You know, my devotions were spot on. I was praying in Greek and Hebrew. I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And so we say yes. And did you think that this was a bad thing? Well, no. Okay, so great. Next question. Did you strive to be physically attractive? That is, did you <laughs> engage in good hygiene? Did you shower? Did you try to look and smell good? Did you groom and stay in reasonably good physical shape? Well, yeah. And did you think that this effort you put into looking physically attractive as something that was bad or worldly? No, you didn't think that. Absolutely not. It was a good thing. And it is a good thing. Remember, God likes matter. It is not an evil or unspiritual thing to try to be physically attractive for your spouse. I refer you to my divine authority, Song of Solomon. We've been through plenty of passages there where the physical attributes of the bride and her groom are praised routinely and graphically. It's not a bad thing. Beauty is a good thing. And we see that praise for one another for their physical features, gazelles and goblets included. 
So once again, if marriage is to be an expression of the love that Christ had for his church and the church submitting the glory of submitting to the glory of Christ, then what is our perspective? What perspective are we supposed to have? Here it is. Our perspective is one of grace. Our perspective is that we are under grace, so we view all of life through the lens of grace. And grace, friends, should not make us lazy. Grace rather motivates us, it propels us to action and good works. So then rather think, rather than thinking, oh, the chase is ended. I've got my man or I've got my lady and now I'm just going to let myself go because I've got what I wanted. That is, that is how a pagan thinks about everything. I've got what I wanted. Now I'm just going to stop. That is counter grace. Grace empowers us. Grace enables us. Grace motivates us to love and good works and to the end of serving our respective spouses. Think about this. Does the gospel, again, because our, our perspective is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, does the gospel turn us into slobs? Does it make us spiritually complacent? We would say, no, not at all. It transforms us into the image of Christ. The gospel gives us grace. Grace bestows beauty. Love, as we've been saying all along, love bestows loveliness. So don't let yourself go. Right? Take, care of, take care of yourself. Take care of one another. And I would say my counsel is, whatever, whatever it was that made you attractive to your spouse, keep doing those things. And we realize, I also will admit, like, as you, as you mature, as you grow older, there is sort of a dynamic to attraction. There is a dynamic to romance. I would say when we're young, a lot of that is physical attraction. It's infatuation. But as you grow and mature, there will be other elements in your marriage as you grow together in the Lord that will make you attractive to one another. So sexual attraction, that is, is not simply, simply physical. It's, it can be a variety of things, and those things grow and change. But because we are a whole person, we want to take care of the whole person. And if love bestows loveliness, then one should seek to be lovely. Right? So the reading, uh, <laughs> to, to get really practical here, um, in, in, in the book, uh, Tying the Knot Tighter, um, in, in, the question on in one of the questions on intimacy, it says, are you clean and do you smell good when you come together? So if you want some application on what this looks like, that's what it looks like. That's what it smells like too, apparently. Okay. So don't let yourself go. If our marriage is to, again, radiate the goodness and grace of our Heavenly Father, then so, then so should our intimacy. So should our so should our attraction to one another. So those are some of the challenges. Those are some of the, the pitfalls. I think, you know, there's other things like, you know, some of us are very body conscious and ma many of you probably are now because I just got done talking about attraction. But the fact is, is that we don't want even embarrassment to be a pitfall of coming together sexually. And I think the uh, solution to that is relatively simple, right? In Genesis, we read, they were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. God has declared it so, so let that be your starting point. And as we've already pointed out, praise one another. Right? Praise one another for your physical beauty. Very simple. And we don't have time to, 
Talk about also one of the challenges for some of you, unfortunately, could be sexual abuse. Having been sexually abused in the past can affect your sexual relationship with your spouse. And we would say that as difficult that, as that is, marriage, I think, provides a, a grace in life that will help you as time goes on to overcome that, that you can, you know, if you have a loving, a loving spouse, you can rediscover God's original design for sexual intimacy. And I would say cling to that with all your strength, right? And that it is more, it is very sufficient uh, for the cross of Christ to cleanse you from any sin that has been done against you. And you can rejoice in that. Sexual betrayal, uh, our brother Andrew Zoll said that very pointedly this morning, just before Sunday school, giving us a, a warning against uh, pornographic addiction. That can, that can also waylay the, the harmony of sex and marriage. So, you know, we've talked about that before in some depth. So those are just some of the issues that, you know, that come up in marriage that we have to respond properly to, and we don't want that to uh, introduce temptation or be a grounds for stumbling into unfaithfulness toward one another. So, again, diligence is required in this. And I think overall, one thing that especially compounds this, and don't miss this, okay? All of the things I just mentioned, right? One of the difficulties that compounds it is when you cannot talk to one another about it, right? I've said, I've said quite a bit regarding marriage, and one of the keys to having a joyous and complete marriage is to be willing to talk about pretty much everything, right? But all these things are on the table, because if you don't talk, to, if you don't talk about these things that are on your mind, that can allow a root of bitterness to develop, and we want to keep those things at bay in the interest of protecting our marriage and being faithful to one another. So what will compound this is if you cannot talk to one another about it. So yes, this, what, what, what this requires is, again, assuming the best about the offended spouse. He or she comes to you and says, hey, this has been on my mind. It's really been troubling me. It's really been troubling me. The one thing you do not do is give them grief about it. Yes, it is a sting. It is a wound. And it is very difficult because it does strike at the heart of something very personal. Because as I've said, no one likes to be described, you know, no one likes to have something said to them where it comes across as, oh, you're just not attracted to me. Or, oh, I guess I must be a horrible wife or I must be a horrible, lazy, no good husband, right? We tend to compound uh, these things because we're offended that something has been pointed out to us. And then we, and then our minds go crazy and we end up uh, hearing things that were never actually said and never actually intended. And it's very sensitive when it comes to sexual relationships in marriage. And so that's why we say faithful are the wounds of a friend. And yet in some of these areas of our marriage, we effectively muzzle the other person from offering any correction, which is intended to seek the well-being of the marriage. And that's why I say, assume the best about the person who is coming, who is coming to you. That is your spouse. You know, that person that you are one flesh with. That person who you're supposed to uh, live the rest of your life with to the glory of God. That person. Assume the best about them and together seek the grace of God in your marriage. But don't silence them by acting offended that they dared to come to you to express a desire for improvement in your marriage. And uh, apparently we're not getting through the text this morning. So... Um, I will close with this when it comes to diligence, because that's the theme, that's the instruction. Diligence. 
by not depriving one another of sexual fulfillment. Here's one thing I will leave you with that I, I, I hope will alarm you in some regard. So keep this in mind, husbands and wives. You are one another's only source of sexual pleasure and gratification. One. One. That's not a number we typically like. We like options. We like variety. We like to choose things of the various human appetites with which we're made that need to be satisfied. Think about food. You need to eat. And there are a variety of foods. There, foods. There's meat, there's veggies, there's fruit, there's chocolate, there's Mexican food, there's Arabic food, there's Italian food, there's cheeseburgers. You have options and we love our options. We love being able to pick. And there's a multiplicity of sources. You have sweet, savory, acidic, spicy. If you are thirsty, here is water, here's soft drink, here's a beer, here's a whiskey. You can drink from a bottle, a fountain, a cup, a river, even a puddle if you're so inclined. The human body needs rest. You can sleep in a bed, right? Oh, a bed? Well, what kind of bed? A sleep number bed? A Sealy bed? Right? One of those cool space foam beds? The couch? The floor? A hammock? Oh yeah, we love our options. Options are glorious. Options are American. But when it comes to satisfaction, when it comes to satisfaction of hunger and thirst and rest, the word limitation or boundary does not often come to mind. There are a variety of sources to satisfy those needs and cravings. But with sex, there is one and only one source, and that is your spouse. That is your spouse. Husbands, that is your wife. Wives, that is your husband. And so, the closing plea today is do not put that to the test. Don't, don't test that limit. And I've seen marriages fall apart because that limit was tested. It was put aside. It wasn't important. And, and, and from some people, it was even, they were even grossed out by it and told their spouses so. And what a tragedy it is to see marriages fall apart because of, because of this. And so often do we fail to simply turn to 1 Corinthians and see a very clear command. Stop depriving one another. And we have the positive commands as presented last week. And so... I guess next Lord's Day we will continue this study through 1 Corinthians 7. But again, the lesson today is more of a negative exhortation. Stop depriving one another and be on your guard against some of these pitfalls and, and recommit yourself to diligence to consider your spouse as better than yourself and to see your marriage grow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you uh, for these commands which draw our attention um, draw our attention to the importance of of this kind of fellowship within marriage and it is, and it is precious it's precious to you and I pray it would be precious to us that we would pursue it with all diligence that we would uh, take this command in mind to stop depriving one another if that is the case Lord you you know the heart of each of these marriages you know you know their circumstances. You know the various temptations and frustrations they face. And so um, I would ask you, Lord, that you would uh, grant a change of heart and mind 
uh, whether husbands or wives who are struggling with this, who have just put this this important piece of marriage aside and have treated it as unimportant and have even maybe become stricken with laziness so it's not given the attention that it's due. Um, I pray, God, that along with with this would also be a, a positive obedience to obey Your command from Philippians 2 that we would do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility to humble ourselves before one another, to consider one another as better than ourselves, that we would not lack in diligence uh, applied uh, to that situation, um, but that we would be careful uh, to carry out your will, Lord, that we would, uh, in our relationships with our husbands and wives, that we would be diligent to uh, fulfill one another's desires and to minister faithfully to one another in that way, knowing that you will bring uh, closeness and joy and, and blessing and reward uh, to that obedience. Lord, but even in that, you will be glorified. So help us, God, to be faithful because you are faithful. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.